Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the God who created the world and everything in it simply by the power of your word. And you are also the one who can shape and mold us by the same power of your living and active word. And so we pray now that you would speak powerfully through that word into our hearts and minds. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, continue through the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, page 798 in the Pew Bibles. Zechariah, chapter 12. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Last week in chapter 11, we looked at perhaps the darkest chapter in the book. As God's people rejected him, As their shepherd. And he in turn gave up being their shepherd. 
he handed them over to judgment and handed them over to a foolish shepherd who would devour the sheep. This was actually a prophetic retelling of their past, of the exile that they had already passed through. And it was a warning to them to not let history repeat itself, to never again turn against the Lord, their good shepherd. But we also saw that this was exactly what happened in the rejection and betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now after this dark history, this sober warning, this morning we enter into the final section of the book, the final prophetic oracle which makes up the last three chapters And it is a prophecy all about the Lord's coming salvation. These chapters are filled with the hope of the Lord's deliverance, of his coming kingdom and glory. And that also means that they contain several clear and profound prophecies of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning we'll learn about the Lord's protection of his people. And we'll also see an incredible prophecy pointing to Christ, him whom they have pierced. And as our passage speaks over of the morning, over this, the pierced one, the call to you this morning will be to mourn and grieve over your sins, the sins for which Christ suffered and died on the cross. Our chapter this morning can be divided into three main sections. First, we'll look at the authority of the author of life in verse 1. Second, the Lord's protection and salvation of his people in verses 2 through 9. And third, the call to mourn for the piercing of the Lord in verses 10 through 14. So first this morning, the authority of the creator and author of life. Verse 1. This first verse, it introduces the prophecy. It begins here in chapter 12 and it runs through to the end of the book in chapter 14. And it says, this is a prophetic oracle of the Lord concerning Israel. And the Lord reminds us here who is speaking, that he is the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth. In other words, he is the creator of all things. He is also the author of life itself, he who formed the spirit of man within him. This is a reference to Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. Why would the Lord choose to Uh, preface this prophecy with a reminder of his original creation. The reason is that here he presents several glimpses of his work of new creation. And surely the one who created all things also has the power and the authority to do this work of salvation and renewal of new creation. And so as we work our ways through these chapters, one phrase that will stand out as a sort of refrain that's repeated over and over again is this phrase, on that day. I don't know if you noticed it as I was reading, but this phrase, it's repeated seven times here in chapter 12, three times in chapter 13, and then seven times again in chapter 14. It's the refrain that echoes over and over. And so, of course, we must ask the question, what is that day that Zechariah is referring to? If you recall, I've pointed it out because we've already seen it, several times in this book. And I've pointed out as we've gone along. In chapter 2, on that day, many nations will join themselves to the Lord. In chapter 3, on that day, all the iniquity of the land will be removed in a single day. And then everyone will invite his neighbor to come under his own vine and fig tree. In chapter 9, on that day, 
The Lord will save his people as his flock, and they will all shine like jewels in his crown. And now, with each repetition of on that day, we get another glimpse of this glorious day to come. And it becomes increasingly clear what that day is, that this is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's salvation. Now, from the perspective of Zechariah, it's clearly a future day to come. But from our perspective, things get a little more complex. Because we now know that Christ has come once to accomplish our salvation, but he is also coming a second time to bring all things to completion, including the final day of judgment and the day when he will usher in, that day when he will also usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the day of the Lord, the last day in terms of the New Testament has been revealed to be, in fact, the last days, plural. And we are living in the midst of them, what the New Testament calls the last days. And so we now know that what Zechariah calls that day refers to the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the time that we are living in, what the New Testament calls the last days. And so this is often the case with Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to Christ's coming, that as they look forward from a long way off, they behold a mountain in the distance. And as the Lord has given them sight, they accurately describe that mountain. However, once you are standing on that mountain, once you're in the midst of the fulfillment of that prophecy, you realize that they saw was actually a mountain range, a series of mountains. Now that prophecy, which was given by the Lord, it's still accurate, it's still true, but the fulfillment is more complex than it looks on the surface. And so as we work our way through these chapters, each time we get to a new section opening on that day, we can consider it another snapshot of the coming of Jesus Christ, of the advance of his glorious kingdom. But we'll have to discern whether it refers to his first coming or his second coming or to the time in between, the church age, these last days that we are living in today. So having considered this introduction, now let's look at verses 2 through 9, the Lord's protection and salvation for his people. And these verses describe Jerusalem and the clans of Judah as they are under siege by all the nations of the earth. They are protected and ultimately saved by the Lord. And the key to understanding this section is to realize these things are happening on that day. And so we must discern when exactly will this be fulfilled. I agree with the great majority of interpreters that Zechariah is speaking here about the New Testament church, but he's using the language of the people of God of his own day, and the people of God of his own day consisted of Jerusalem and the surrounding region of Judah, the clans of Judah. And this makes perfect sense when you think about it. The Lord speaks through his prophet in the language and the idiom of his day. And so he doesn't speak, he wouldn't have even had the language to speak of the church of Jesus Christ, he speaks about Jerusalem and Judah. But the New Testament people of God are all those who are the children of Abraham, all those who have the faith of Abraham. We are the true Israel of God, those who are the true circumcision. And so we today are rightly referred to as inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. All that Zechariah prophesies here is fulfilled in Christ's church, 
in the time between his first and leading up to his second coming. As the church is advancing throughout all the earth, and just as Christ predicted, the church is hated and persecuted and assaulted and besieged by the people and the governments of every nation. As Christ said, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. John 15, 19. That the Lord is our strength. He is our shield and our protector. And so he describes what this will be like. First, we have three images of how the Lord will overthrow those who besiege Jerusalem and Judah in verses 2 through 4. In verse 2, we see that the Lord will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to the surrounding peoples. This imagery of a cup of foaming wine, the foaming wine of God's wrath, it causes all those who stagger, who drink it to stagger and fall over drunk. Now in Isaiah 51, 17, the Lord actually had made, his own people had made Jerusalem to drink this cup. But here there's a reversal. The Lord uses Jerusalem to make those who attack her stagger and fall. And in verse 3, notice, here's the first use of on that day. On that day, the Lord will make Jerusalem a heavy stone so that all who try to lift it hurt themselves. Perhaps you think of a stone, you you dig it up in your yard, you're digging around it, you think, oh, I'll just pick it up. But you go and you try to and you discover it's solid iron. And just trying to pick it up, you throw your back out. But it's not just that. This word here for injure or hurt, it's usually translated to, to cut or to gash. And so it's not just a strained muscle, but in trying to lift this heavy rock, the nations are slashed wide open. Then in verse 4, we have a cavalry charge against Jerusalem. And once again, the Lord defends his people, striking the horses with panic, its riders with madness. And if that's not enough, then the Lord strikes these panicked horses with blindness. And he says he will keep his eyes open to guard his people. This prophecy, just like in verse 2, it's another reversal. For one of the curses for disobedience in the Mosaic Covenant was that the Lord would strike his own people with madness and blindness and confusion in Deuteronomy 28, 28. But here, the Lord brings that curse upon not his own people, but upon their enemies. All these images are images of how the Lord will defend his church. And that means you, brothers and sisters, when you are besieged and attacked by the world around you. And so you have nothing to fear with the Lord as your protector as your defender. Well, thankfully, we can say that we live in a country where persecution is far less common. It tends to be less serious than in other places around the world. And yet you see where our culture is going, and you know this may not be the case for much longer. Christians may, in coming years, lose their jobs, may be sued, may face discrimination, simply for holding biblical views on marriage, sexuality, and gender. These are the hot-button issues of our day, and we certainly pray for revival, for biblical morality to advance and win the day. But our culture, it seems to be plunging headlong into darkness. And that will likely mean increased persecution for believers. But whatever happens with our culture, take heart, because no matter what we face, we trust that we live under the Lord's protection. And that this siege upon Christ's church will fail. 
And so we should come to the conclusion, verse 5, Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. It is the Lord who is our strength, the Lord who fights our battles. Now the scene here is that the clans of Judah are outside the walls of Jerusalem. They've been watching as the nations are attacking, and one attack after another has been thwarted. And so they realize the Lord is defending the city. Now it's time to go on the offensive. And the Lord now makes these clans of Judah like a fire pot, which ignites the peoples around it like wood, and a flaming torch which sets ablaze the sheaves of grain. And with this, the siege is defeated. The Lord grants salvation for his people. Surely this is the Lord's victory. The Lord says in verse 7, There is equal glory for those who are defending in the city and those who are on the offensive in the field. And in verse 8, we see that even the feeblest is made to be like David, the mighty warrior, and that the house of David representing the leaders of the people, they receive an even greater comparison. They shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. This, of course, is the greatest comparison possible, to be like the Lord, the Almighty. And of course, in our spiritual warfare, this is what we are called to do, to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. We are all called to strive to put sin to death, to put on righteousness, to become like Christ in every way possible, to put on the full armor of God, and that's how we fight in this spiritual battle. And while verse 8 is a comparison, it's saying they shall be like God. It's not saying necessarily here that God himself will enter the fray. We also know the end of the story. That when Christ returns on that final day, he will ride into battle on a white horse as he leads the armies of heaven. And in fact, verse 9, which speaks of the Lord's setting himself to destroy all the nations that have besieged his people. This is a foreshadowing of that final day. The fall of Babylon. The destruction of all the ungodly nations that have set themselves against his people as depicted in Revelation 18. Precious truth to cling to in this section is that the Lord protects and delivers his people when the world around us seeks our destruction. Jesus Christ has promised that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And though the nations of the earth array themselves against us, and even if they have the cosmic powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil on their side, we have a defender that is stronger than them all. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the heavenly hosts, he is our strength, and he will protect and deliver us. So that is what we see here in these first verses, two through nine, the Lord's protection and salvation for his people. Now from this triumphal victory, the passage turns quite a corner, it's quite a shift as we next have a call to mourn for the piercing of the Lord. So let's read now verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, 
and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. If you consider this verse in terms of chronological order, what happens first is they pierce the Lord, then he pours out his spirit, and then they look upon him and mourn. And so we'll work through the verse in this order, beginning with the piercing. And the wording here, it's quite profound, for the Lord himself is speaking, and he says, they, when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced. And this term pierced, it means exactly what you would expect to pierce, usually with a sword, sometimes with a spear, and the usual, the expected outcome is piercing unto death. And so for Zechariah's original audience, it must have been confounding, perplexing. It must have been a bit of a mystery. How can you pierce the Lord God? God is a spirit. He has no body. He cannot die. And perhaps they could have come up with a metaphorical understanding. With our sins, we have pierced the heart of God. We have deeply grieved and wounded him. And certainly there is truth to that. But the literal fulfillment of this prophecy is far more profound than that. For in his incarnation, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, he took on human flesh. And on the cross, God himself was pierced. First by nails in his hands and feet, and then once more with a spear. And so the Apostle John records in his gospel, that this was a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. He says this in John 19.37. A fulfillment of this prophecy, but the actual piercing of Christ, that was only the beginning of the fulfillment, for there is far more to this prophecy than simply piercing the Lord. For God also says he will pour out his spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. This outpouring of God's Spirit, it immediately makes us think of Pentecost, when God pours out His Spirit on the church. And notice the two results of this outpoured Spirit He highlights here in Zechariah grace and pleas for mercy. And when you think of Pentecost, you may think of the disciples as they were gathered there, they were praying, and then the Spirit was poured out. They received the Spirit, invisible tongues of fire that descended upon them, and then they went out and they Preach the gospel. But don't forget who else received the Spirit that day. That God's Spirit was also received by the 3,000 who heard that preaching as the Spirit worked in them, heard the preaching in their own tongues. They were cut to the heart and they cried out, Brothers, what shall we do? And they repented of their sins. And they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and they were baptized. This is certainly a description of the pouring out of God's spirit of grace that drove them to plea with God for mercy. But here we need to connect this to the next important aspect in the Zechariah passage. They shall mourn. And the mourning described in verse 10 and following it is a deep and bitter mourning of great loss for an only child or a firstborn son. On a society where the inheritance, the, the family farm, 
the very means of subsistence, everything they had, it went primarily to the firstborn son. To lose that firstborn, or even worse, the only son, that was the greatest loss a father or mother could imagine. That's why when Naomi lost her two sons, she used the same Hebrew term used here, translated bitter weeping. She used that when she said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Ruth 1.20, this is a bitter morning. And so in the next verse, 11, it's compared to the morning of Hadad Ramon in Megiddo. It's where they mourned for the good king Josiah. when he died very young, and he died by piercing. He was shot with an arrow. And 2 Chronicles 35 tells us that not only all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him right after his death, but that Jeremiah, he wrote a lament that was sung annually to remember his death. And then verses 12 to 14 tells us how the whole land goes on to pour out their hearts in grief. It highlights how a few of the leading families grieve, the house of David and the house of David's son, Nathan. And it traces also the priestly houses, Levi and Levi's son, grandson, Shimei. And the emphasis here is that each family mourns by itself and men and women each mourn by themselves. This is to show that the grief is genuine. They aren't doing this to show off for others in a public gathering, but because the Spirit of God has convicted their hearts and driven them to godly grief for their sin, for the sin of piercing the Lord. And that's really what's being depicted here. As we see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, first as Peter proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ in his preaching, as he lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ and shows them what they have really done, They behold, they look upon whom they have pierced. And they come to realize he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53. And so Peter Peter boldly challenges them. This Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now he does also go on to preach the good news of the resurrection. But you can imagine the grief, the mourning. As the people realize the enormity of the crime. And they are cut to the heart. Here's the way Peter puts it in the next chapter. But you denied the holy and the righteous one, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, Acts 3, 14 and 15. You can imagine how this preaching brought many to tears for the one whom they pierced and how it drove them to mourn, to repent and believe the gospel. All whom the Lord called. But even as they cried out, You crucified him. You pierced him. Consider does this apply only to those who were present that day? Was it only those who were in that very crowd who shouted, Crucify? 
Was it only those few who actually held the nails? The one who jabbed in the spear? Were they the only ones responsible for piercing the Lord of glory? As we already saw in Isaiah 53, the real reason that Jesus Christ was pierced was for our transgressions. So that by his wounds, we might be healed. And so it is just as much your sins that placed him on the cross and pierced his flesh. And as God's spirit is poured out upon all those whom he is calling to himself, he grants you grace to cry out for mercy. Grace to behold your pierced Savior. Grace to grieve over your sins for which Christ laid down his life. And this is the call of the gospel. To repent of your sins, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And essential to the gospel is a proper godly sorrow. A proper mourning over your sin for which Christ was pierced and died. This is the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. For godly grief, godly sorrow, it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. When God's spirit is at work in you, he will produce this sort of godly grief, which leads to repentance and ultimately to salvation. Godly grief means recognizing the utter depravity of your sin, that you have sinned against a holy God, the one who created you, who has given you everything good, and yet you have turned against your creator. When you owed him everything, And you should have worshipped him and served him and obeyed him. Instead, you turned aside and you served idols. Stabbing the Lord in the back. Godly grief means beholding your Savior. And recognizing the cost of his sacrifice. That God himself gave his only begotten son. That he might die on the sin that your sins might be forgiven. And godly grief recognizes that this was the only way. If any other solution were sufficient, that would be the way of salvation. But there is no other way. Jesus Christ didn't die to just give one other option, one other path to salvation. This is the only way. And so Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions, so that by his death we might live. And so it is by God's grace that the Spirit produces in us this godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation. Now there is one more reference to Zechariah 12.10 in the New Testament. Another reference also written by the Apostle John, but this time in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now here we see that when Christ returns, his second coming, every eye will look upon him and there will be a response of wailing. But this time in the second coming, Jesus is no longer coming as a, sec- as a humble savior. This time he is coming to judge the earth. 
And that means that this time, it's no longer a response of mourning for sin, a repentance unto salvation. This is the wailing of despair, saying, woe is me, the end is nigh. These aren't mourning that they pierced the Lord. They're mourning that he didn't stay in the ground, that evil didn't win victory on that day. And so now Christ has returned with judgment and they are terrified of the wrath of God. And so at the end of the day, we see that everyone will mourn for the consequences of their sin. The only difference is this. Who will bear the judgment that your sins deserve? If you have put your trust in Christ, then he has been pierced for your transgressions. And you should mourn and grieve at what cost he has borne for you, at what price he has paid to win your salvation. And yet also rejoice that he has gladly laid down his life for you. What amazing love. But if not, then you will also wail and mourn when you realize that you will pay the price, that the judgment for your sins will fall on you alone. But I heard you don't let that happen. Christ's call to you is to repent and to put your trust in Christ and Christ alone and he will forgive your sins. He will take them on to himself on the cross. If you trust in him, then he was pierced for you. And yes, that means mourning that he was pierced for you, but that's far better than the alternative. It is a good thing to mourn if it is godly sorrow, godly grief, a mourning of repentance unto Salvation, And that's what God's Spirit produces in us, what he calls us to. And what our Lord Jesus Christ says is blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Luke 6, 21. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you are the creator who stretched out the heavens, who founded the earth, who formed and breathed life into mankind. And so we know that you also have the power and authority to grant us new life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that Christ, our Lord, was pierced for our transgressions. And we thank you that you have poured out your spirit so that we might realize how much we have grieved you how we need your grace and mercy, how much it cost Christ to save us from our sins. Father, grant us a true godly sorrow that we might repent of our sins in a way that pleases you. And also, Father, when we are besieged by the world around us, help us to look to you, to trust in you, that you are our strength and our deliverer. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.